0: Let's open our Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5, we're making our way through the pastoral epistles on Sunday mornings. Today, there is a leadership crisis in the churches in America and around the world. There have been several authors, writers who have written about that. They've recognized the the problem, and there are very few who agree on how it can be corrected. Most churches turn to the business model. It seems to work well for the world, and so they try to apply those principles in the church. But they neglect to see what God says about church leadership from the word of God, the scriptures. I'm glad we have this inspired record before us. We have a savior who said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Pastoral epistles address many of these principles that show us God's plan for church leadership. And that will be the title of our message this morning, God's Plan for Church Leadership. Back in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we found a list of qualifications for leaders in the church. Those are the standards that God gave for pastors and deacons and their families to meet in order to serve him. And we're coming now to the second half of chapter 5, 5. Here, as just a brief overview, Paul will explain how churches are to take care of elders who are doing the work of the ministry well, and then how to deal with those elders who are, who are not, who are failing in moral or spiritual areas. And those are verses 17 through 20. And then in 21 through 23, Paul will give some individual attention to Timothy, some personal help as he writes about how to be effective in ministry. And then the chapter closes in the last two verses with a reminder that one day we'll stand before God, we'll bring everything to light. So first, the church's responsibility to its elders in verses 17 through 20. We have in 17 and 18, elders who rule well are to be rewarded. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. Now, the first thing we like to ask as we look at these elders here is who are they? In verses 1 and 2, Paul listed four groups of people that are in the church by their age and by their gender, and we made an application in that section when we talked about the older men, that it could be an older person in the church, the group of men, or it could be talking about the elder or pastor. There's a distinction between the two. There are elders who are pastors, and there are elders who don't hold any office in the church, they're just older men. I had a roommate in college who uh, uh, graduated with me, and he went to a church in Ohio. It was a Bible church, and he was uh, elected as an elder in that church. They're a Bible church, and that generally they have a board of elders. Since he was so young, he was referred to as the younger elder. So not necessarily uh, in age, as far as we talk about the, the leadership in the church, Uh, The elders in verse 17 are not just talking about those older men in the church, but they are church officials. Some argue that since uh, New Testament churches had more than one elder in a lot of the areas where the the letters were written, that there should be more than one elder in every church today. Um, And they argue for a board of elders. Maybe you know churches like that. Presbyterian churches do, Bible churches do. The strongest argument that that we have as Baptists against uh, church elders who are not pastors in the way that the words are used in the Bible uh, in the early church, we mentioned those a little bit early in our study, but let me just review that. The Bible has uh, three different terms, terminologies that are used for pastors, uh, and each term uh, tells us about the character of one person. Uh, First of all, he's a bishop. The word is episkopos, and it means to oversee, and so a bishop is an overseer. He looks over the church to make sure that everyone is spiritually healthy. He's also called a pastor. Poimen is the word. It means that he's a shepherd. He guides the flock. He makes sure that everyone is fed spiritually and is protected from danger of false teachings. He's also called an elder, and that's what we have in this section, a presbyteros. Uh, he should set an example because of either his age and maturity or the experience that he's had. And so all three of these terms are mentioned together, uh, describing the same person. There's a, a great passage in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses one through four, where all three of those uh, titles are used of the, the leadership in the church. And so here in 1 Timothy five seventeen. Paul is talking about the pastor as an elder, the presbyteros. Baptist churches have two offices, uh, the pastor and deacons. Uh, Pastors are are different than deacons. If you were to think of the the main difference is deacons are concerned about the physical needs of the church. In fact, that's what when they were chosen, first of all, they were chosen to help make sure that the distribution to the widows was, was done fairly. Uh the, the spiritual leadership should be that of the pastors, uh, the elders who preach and teach are to take care of those kinds of needs, uh, concerned about that. Well, what should characterize the work of an elder here? It says that he should rule well. The word rule literally means simply to stand before. So it's talking about the, the person who presides over the church meetings, Unfortunately, many people have seen that word rule, many pastors have looked at that and they said, well, I need to be the king, I need to be a dictator over the church. That's not what it's saying at all. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, I mentioned 1 through 4, having all three of those uh, titles of a pastor in that section, but there are warnings in those two verses in the middle, verses 2 and 3, for pastors, they're, they're stated in the, in the positive and in the negative. And I like when it does that because it gives you the whole gamut of, of what he's talking about. And he advises the, the pastors here, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking oversight thereof. And that's the word episkopos, oversight. Not by constraint, but willingly. Okay? Not this, but that. Not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples for the flock. And so, let's look at the negative. Not by constraint. What's the opposite of that? Willingly. Okay? The pastor is not shepherding because someone is making him do it. He's been called by God and he wants to do that to please God. It's a willing service. Second, not for money but with a ready mind. Again, it's not driven by anything that it has anything to do with the monetary uh, stipend that a pastor gets. He should be doing it because he has this ready mind to do it. And then, not as lords over, but as in samples or examples. Wayne Grudem says, he implies that, that Paul implies that elders should govern not by the use of threats, emotional intimidation or flaunting of power, nor generally by the use of political force within the church, but rather by power of example whenever possible. So he's to rule. Notice also it says that he's to rule well. It means that he's to rule honestly in a manner that's commendable. So they should rule well. Secondly, they should labor in the word and doctrine. Uh, We get our word a uh, copious from that word, the Greek word for labor here. And when a student is, says that he takes copious notes, I was looking for students like that when you have open seating in college, you want to sit by someone who takes those kinds of notes, okay? Not to copy from them, but just ask for help, okay? <laughs> They're detailed. They include everything that the teacher said plus something, you know. Uh, the elder who labors in the word is, is working copiously. He's working to the point of exhaustion. He doesn't do it just, uh, I'll get a, do enough just to get by for this week. And where does he spend his time laboring to the point of this exhaustion? Two areas, in the word and in doctrine. The word refers to his preaching. The doctrine for refers to his teaching. One author says, Preaching calls for response to God's word, while teaching is a necessary bulwark against heresy. So both are important, and I think we could argue in Ephesians chapter 4:11, when God gifts different people to the church, that that last one that's gifted is a pastor-teacher, and those terms should go together. Pastors should teach; teachers should be pastors in the sense of a ministry of the church. So how are they to be rewarded? It says, those who rule well are worthy of double honor. And some pastors say, see, I should get twice as much as everybody else. That's not what it's talking about. This honor is the same word that was used earlier in the chapter for honoring widows, who are widows indeed, and that did include helping them financially. And so that is involved, but it's, it's also appreciation. And double here simply means that it should be fitting. It should be adequate. It's clear from other passages that this is a matter that the church is to consider. It's not a matter that a pastor demands. It's not something that he is focused or consumed with. Be careful when a person tells you what his salary needs to be when he comes into a church ministry. I know of missionaries and evangelists and pastors who will only go when a church can guarantee a certain amount for a love offering. That's embarrassing. You can't put a price tag on ministry, and you shouldn't. In fact, in Matthew chapter 10, and verse 8, at the end of that verse, it says, Freely ye have received, freely give. And the context is all about ministry. We don't do it for money. We do it because God has called us. Paul didn't want to be a burden on any church. He told the church at Corinth that in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 9. He says, when I was present with you, that is, when I was living among you at the church at Corinth, and wanted, that is, he lacked finances, I was chargeable to no man. For that which was lacking to me, the brethren which came from Macedonia supplied. And in all things I have kept myself from being burdensome unto you, and so will I keep myself. This is an ongoing commitment that he was never charging the church where he was ministering. In fact, this uh, aid came from the churches in Macedonia. He was very careful about that. And he wrote to them again in, in uh, well, he, he said also in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 14, that uh, he said, even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. When I was first in, in, uh, in Bible college, I thought that meant he needs to live what he preaches. But it says it, he lives of the gospel, that is the gospel ministry should take care of him financially. But, Paul says... Verse 15, 1 Corinthians 9. I have used none of these things, neither have I written these things, that it should be so done unto me. For it were better for me to die than that any man should make my glorying void. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory. For necessity is laid upon me, yea, woe is me if I preach not the gospel." He wasn't preaching for money. He was preaching it so that Christ would be known. In 1 Timothy 5, 18, Paul is quoting from, first from the Old Testament and then a New Testament reference that make a point that the minister should be compensated for his work. The Old Testament is from Deuteronomy 25, verse four. Thou shalt not muzzle the ox when he treadeth out the corn. Even this task of the ox at the mill uh, was to be something that you're charitable about. He would be harnessed to this millstone. He would grind the grain into flour. And while he was doing that, it was not allowed for them to put a muzzle on it. He said, well, that ox always eats the grain that's falling down. He's supposed to be able to do that. Be kind. He's the one doing the work. Okay. But not only are animals to be remunerated for their labor, so are servants. And that's the quote from Luke 10.7. The laborer is worthy of his hire. That's a principle that we should take on a day-to-day basis. If someone does something for you, you ought to pay them for it. You ought to be generous with what God has given you. Be honest with people. So elders that rule well are to be rewarded. Notice also in verses 19 and 20, elders that sin ought to be rebuked. Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses them that sin rebuke before all that others also may fear. Now, if you're going to take an accusation to a a pastor, a bishop, an elder in a church, it should be with two or three witnesses. It should be cautious. Here, receive not. Against an elder, receive not an accusation. The word receive means to consider in your mind or to entertain a thought. So before you entertain a thought about someone doing something wrong in the church, you should get two or three witnesses who have that same thought. There's an agreement. And then with that, that's an Old Testament stipulation, Deuteronomy 19.15, to have two or three witnesses. Then you go. The rebuke is to be public, notice. Rebuke before all. I don't think it's all the the deacons or, or all of a smaller group, but I think it's all the church needs to know this. He needs to be rebuked before all. Guthrie said, when faced with sinning elders, a spineless attitude is deplorable. I have mentioned that before. I think it needs to be repeated. You need to be careful. Uh, When you make an accusation, and it is a genuine accusation, everyone should know about it. And there's a reason that this rebuke is to take place in the entire church, number one. Well, notice the result was fear. Fear of exposure, fear of uh, going before the church publicly and being corrected. And so that would, that would be a, a great result if churches took care of this matter of elders who sin that need to be rebuked. Others would understand this is a serious thing. Okay, so that's, that's the first point. Now let's look at Paul's charge to Timothy in verses 21 to 23. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels, that thou observe these things without preferring one another, preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. Lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be partaker of other men's sins. Keep thyself pure. drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. Here again, personal, words of advice to Timothy. Notice first the way it starts, I charge thee before God. The word charge here isn't the same one that that Paul has used before as a military command. The, The meaning of this has to do with standing in front of witnesses and giving a true testimony. Who are the three witnesses that Paul's calling on as he gives this testimony? I charge thee before God, before the Lord Jesus Christ, and before the elect angels. Those are the angels that did not follow Satan in his rebellion. Those angels are called demons. But here, before the elect angels. This is the, the audience that matters. Consider that someday you're going to stand before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and angels. And as you think about that, then start living your life accordingly. Knowing that there is going to be an accountability, a day of of accounting. Romans 2.16 says, In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. This is Paul's gospel, what he's preaching here. There is going to be an accountability. And so he's he's telling Timothy, I'm I'm standing up with these witnesses and asking you to to do this, this thing. First of all, he, he starts with a warning about a partiality without preferring one before another. Now, that could be two things. It could be preferring one command of Scripture over another. It's funny how some people go through the Bible, and they'll pick and choose the commands that they want to obey and then the ones they don't want to obey. They'll underline the things that they think are important, but the others, there's some question marks. There's some other verses. There's some arguments. God never offers his commands cafeteria style. You ever see people that go through the cafeteria? I'll take a little of that and a little of that. That's not the way we approach scripture. Okay, So that could be what he's talking about, not preferring one command of scripture over another. It could also mean without preferring one person above another. Timothy is a young minister now, and He's not to be intimidated by someone who's older who comes in and corrects him every Sunday. Uh, He's not to be intimidated by their social position, by their wealth. The Bible tells us to treat everyone equally. So don't think that you'll get a pass because you've been saved for a long time and somebody hasn't. God still expects the same from each of us. Don't think that there's a leniency, that God will overlook your sin because you've already put in your time with him. You've already lived for him. Even King David, a man after God's own heart, reaped the results of sin. So, without preferring one before another, and then do nothing by partiality. Timothy was told that he was not to show favoritism in ministry. It's always a temptation to, to want to please people. We we like it when people like us. No matter what God has called or gifted you to do, you need to have the attitude that you're going to use your spiritual gift not to make other people happy, but to please God. Think of your life as having an audience of one. You're not performing on stage before a crowd whom you hope will... You'll win their approval and their applause. This is real life. This is not an acting on a stage. God is watching your life. And he's the only one that matters. You want to please him. So partiality will sidetrack you from that goal of pleasing him alone. We come now to the specific instructions in the charge. Paul has four instructions to Timothy. And I think we can learn from, from each of these four. First of all... Be careful whom you select for the work of the ministry. He says, lay hands suddenly on no man. He's speaking of the laying on of hands for ordination. Let a laborer first show that he's faithful to God. Not because you've given him something to do. You don't say, well, I think I'll put somebody in charge of a Sunday school class or a ministry, and that way they'll be more faithful in coming to church you look around to the ones who are already faithful and you ask them to serve. He that is faithful in the small things is faithful also in much. So don't lay hands on on someone for ordaining them to the gospel ministry too quickly. I've been to some ordination services where the questioning was really intense. Uh, The pastors who made up the council didn't even agree with some of the answers that should have been given. But they want to make sure that there's, there's a new preacher who knows what he believes. He's going to stand in the pulpit and say what God says without error. I've been to some ordination services where you, you go home and you think, I don't know if he was really ready. He should have studied more. Either in school and needs to take more classes or needs to study more on his own. You know, when you go in for a a surgery, uh, most of you are going to look and see what the record is of that surgeon. You want to make sure that he graduated, that he has his credentials, that he's done this procedure before. Why is it we'll go into a church and we'll listen to somebody open the Bible and, and handle the word of God incorrectly and we're not concerned at all? This is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and it can hurt if it's not used properly. And so lay hands on no man suddenly. Second, Timothy is to be separate from the sins of others, neither be partaker of other man's sins. Now again, we have a couple of different ways this could go. First of all, it could be a general admonition for Timothy to avoid sin by not following the wrong crowd. Wrong philosophies of the age. Don't be a partaker of of that sin, of that direction. But more likely, because of the words of caution about ordination already, this is talking about approving someone for ministry who is known to be living in sin. If you ordain somebody who's not qualified, you're going to share some of the blame that will take place because of the lives that person influences. The writers of the Bible Knowledge Commentary have that view. They say, those who take part in the premature ordination of an errant elder share some of the blame for the negative consequences to their church. So be separate from the sins of others. Either don't, don't run with that wrong crowd, Timothy, or don't lay hands on someone who has that tendency of, of sin. Then third, he says, keep thyself pure. What a wonderful admonition. And when you think about our day and age and the culture in which we live, see how much more important it is now, as, as important as it was then at least, to keep thyself pure. If you're gonna have a testimony to others. He's, t- he's telling Timothy, you can't expect to be effective in helping others live right if you're not living right? If you don't have the victory over sin in your own life, how can you help others? It's always easier to see the sliver in somebody else's eye than the the log or the beam in your own. And we need to be careful as as we consider, how are we to live as believers, to live holy lives? Keep thyself pure. The fourth admonition, take care of your health. Verse 23, drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. And and people will say, ah, there it is, verse 23, I'm going to write it down, that's my life verse. (laughs) The misunderstanding of this verse has caused a lot of controversy. Some use it to defend drinking alcoholic beverages today, When you never come to a conclusion from one verse of scripture, it's almost like an inverted pyramid. You have it all balancing on this one verse, and if that verse is taken out or explained to mean something different, the whole pyramid will fall over. We have all sorts of other scriptures, Proverbs 20 verse 1, wine is a mocker and strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. So why would Paul be telling Timothy to go ahead and drink? Well, Gordon Fee, in his commentary, has a little footnote at the bottom of his page that helps us understand the culture and what was going on when this this passage was written. He says the medicinal use of wine, especially for stomach problems, is reflected in various sources of the Talmud, Hippocrates, Plutarch, and Pliny. And so he's saying this this was for medicinal purposes. This verse tells me two things about Timothy. Number one... He was often sick. He had stomach problems. Second, because of that, and because he's, Paul is encouraging him to take a little wine with his water for his stomach's sake, he believed in total abstinence of drinking wine. That's the way Timothy was, had decided to live. Even when his health is at stake. And so Paul's encouraging, put a little wine in that water. Wine was often used to kill the bacteria in the water. And he had to tell Timothy, take that precaution. He was trying to persuade him to do the healthy thing. This verse cannot be used to justify alcohol as a beverage in our day. Uh, just for the simple argument that we have refrigeration today, you can go down and buy a bottle of Absopure. Okay, we have bottled water. We have ways to purify water. The Edmund Hebert concludes the section, he says, no sanction for the habit of drinking wine as a beverage can be drawn from these words. And so we have those admonitions to Timothy, helpful things, practical things that Paul gives. Now last, verses 24 and 25, a reminder about future judgment. Some men's sins are opened beforehand, going before to judgment and some men they follow after. Likewise also the good works of some are manifest beforehand, and they that are otherwise cannot be hid. So first, verse 24, he's talking about judgment on sin. Some are open, well known. Everybody knew about that sin and that problem that that person has. And and so it goes before them to that judgment. It came out. There was no hiding it, everybody knew. And then it says, some follow after. No one knew about that sin here. It either got covered well, swept under the carpet, hidden from the eyes of everyone, and, and even the person who did it thinks, well, maybe I got away with this. But in the end, that sin is going to surface under the righteous judgment of an all-knowing God Nothing escapes him. Numbers 32, 23 says, be sure your sin will find you out. And so it either goes before that person or follows him, but he'll end up on judgment day. That sin will be there. It's interesting. Here the sins are described as, as the things that are doing the action. It's not the man who takes the sin to the judgment, but the sins that take the man there. The sins either follow after or go before so, man thinks he's the one who, who handles his sin. I've got control over that. I can stop any time I want. Not realizing it's sin that has the grip on man, and it's going to take him to the judgment. No escaping the account that we'll give before God. In verse 25, we have the same type of thing, following or going before or following, with regard to good works here instead of sin. Likewise, also the good works of some are manifest beforehand, and they that are otherwise cannot be hid. Likewise also, just as there's no escaping the judgment of sin, there's no missing out on the reward that God has for good works. Some people's good works are made known before the day. People see them. Others follow them. And just like sin, here's a good work that nobody really saw. And you say, does that go without any reward at all? No, it doesn't. They will be revealed. It says they cannot be hid. Well, let me make two applications from this last section, and then we'll have our invitation this morning. What about the sin in your life? Whether it's known by others and goes before you to the judgment, or whether it's something that nobody else knows about at this point. When you stand before God, it will all be uncovered. I'm so glad that Jesus took the punishment for our sin. When he died on Calvary's cross and you trusted him as your savior, all of those sins are forgiven. You'll never be punished for them. Christ took your punishment at Calvary. Perhaps you have not accepted that payment. You've never come to a point in your life where you've trusted Jesus Christ as your personal savior It's hard to believe but there are people who come to church live all their lives and and everyone thinks well they must be saved I've seen them at church a lot but they've never truly been born again they've never come to a point in their life where they've trusted him as their Savior if that describes you I would encourage you take care of it today don't let others think something that's not real don't let your sins be judged in your own life for eternity Accept the judgment that Christ took on Calvary in your place. Are you a believer, perhaps, living with some besetting sin, unconfessed sin? You may have tried to have victory over it before. Pastor Nate mentioned a verse at the beginning of our service, First John 1, 9. It's written to believers, if we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So believers who sin can have that sense of forgiveness. Come and agree with God, confess, say, Lord, this is what I've been doing and you've known about it and now I'm admitting it. And I want to get back in the battle against those things that war against my soul. And with your help, I want to have victory over those sins. What about the good works that God allows you to accomplish? Are you laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust doesn't corrupt, where thieves don't break through and steal? Or are you putting all your treasures in in empty bags here on this earth? With God's help, maybe you say to this morning, I want to start laying up my treasures in heaven. I want to see those good works that God allows me to do, not by my own goodness, but by his goodness in me, I want to be faithful and see those rewards in heaven for his glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Although, again, this is a section of practical application in church ministry, it still has these, these verses, these nuggets that bring our own lives into Your the exposure of your word and, and the vision that you have and we need, to, we need to take account. We need to realize that someday we'll face you. And I pray that if there's sin unconfessed or a sin that is so besetting, that someone will have victory over that today. By getting back in the battle against sin, by trusting the strength that you provide on a day-to-day basis to have victory, And I pray that, that that decision will be made this morning. If there's one here who is unsaved, I pray that they'll make that decision to accept you as their personal Savior. And I pray that each of us would seek to have good works that will be rewarded, not for our praise, but for all for your glory. Help us make the decisions that need to be made this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.